Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers podcast. The democracy of the United States has been challenged by the country's very leader in recent weeks, almost as if the democratic ideals that they all agreed to before the election and and things like this are, are no longer reasonable all of a sudden just because the vote didn't go his way. Um, and this just got me thinking of democracy itself. Where did it start? How did it flourish in the 20th century to give us such a democratic culture that we just almost take for granted? How did it start? And um, what are the things that are conducive to its growth? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about democracy. Source primary source is an article by Dahl from Yale University in the Stanford, excuse me, in uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, also the article Democracy in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So democracy, the definition of it, it literally means rule by the people. The term is derived from the Greek word demokratia, which was coined from demos, which means people, and kratos, which means rule. So literally, rule by the people. The word originated around 500 BCE, so around 2,500 years ago now. And although the word originated at this time, um, contrary to popular belief, I guess, and contrary to my belief before researching for this episode, democracies existed long before that, long before the Greeks who coined the term in 500 BCE. And although it is tempting to assume that democracy was created in one particular place and time, which is what I thought in Greece in 500 BCE, evidence suggests that democratic government existed in several areas of the world well before the turn of the 5th century. So let's talk about the origin of democratic institutions. And these institutions have existed really uh, since prehistory. Studies suggest that democratic governments existed among many tribal groups during the thousands of years when human beings survived by hunting and gathering. Um, but once humans began to settle in fixed communities, primarily for agriculture and trade, and this was happening in the agricultural revolution, the conditions that favored popular participation in government uh, or democratic principles became increasingly rare. Well, why is this the case? Why is it that once the agricultural revolution happened, we kind of uh, left democracy behind? Well, one of the reasons is a greater inequality in wealth and military power that developed between communities, and also the increase in the typical community's size and scale. In a hunter and gathering community, it's easier to for everyone to have a say because the groups are smaller, and you can you can quite easily hear everybody's opinion when these communities grow and then there's more trade routes and there's just more intermingling things then it becomes more difficult for everybody to have a say so democratic principles don't come so naturally anymore and then um, that's when you get uh, things like there will be one leader or one kind of group of leaders over everyone and no one else gets a say so that started to happen during the agricultural revolution and the result of this was a spread of hierarchical and authoritarian forms of social organization that totally go against the initial democracies that research shows did exist in hunter and gatherers. But democracy made a comeback, and, and it made a comeback in Greece and in Rome, and this is what more people are familiar with, perhaps. 
Around 500 BCE, as we mentioned, conditions favorable to democracy reappeared in several places, and a few small groups began to create popular governments. So, primitive democracy, one might say, was reinvented in more advanced forms, the most crucial developments occurring in Greece and Rome. So, although these democratic principles did exist in hunters and gatherers, it re-emerged and it was refined by the Greeks and the Romans in the Roman Republic around 500 to 400 BCE. So, although the Greeks and Romans didn't invent democracy itself, they played a major role in advancing its principles and they wrote about it, uh, not extensively, I wouldn't say, but there were philosophers that uh, kind of penned up, put put pen to paper or whatever means they used to write to actually figure out what democracy was in principle. Um, we're going to skip way ahead. We're going to skip all the way to the 20th century, almost a 2000 year skip here um, or more actually. And we are going to figure out the factors that led to the spread of democracy because we can't trace it all the way from prehistory to now. So we're going to jump ahead to what may be more relevant for us. Um, the first factor that contributed to the spread of democracy in the 20th century was the failure of non-democratic systems. So during the 1900s, the main alternatives to democracy suffered political, economic, diplomatic, and military failures that we that most people know so well about in in the 1900s from the the soviet union to the fascists and all these alternatives to democracy failed so essentially that propelled uh democracy itself in in, in a lot of nations because if the alternatives are a no-go and they either got stomped upon through war or they failed through their own failings as in the case of the soviet union that had its economic and political collapse in 1990 to 1991 um you're not left with much more than to choose a democratic society um or to live in a democratic society so these are the failures that led to the spread of democracy in the 20th century similar failures contributed to the gradual disappearance of military dictatorships in Latin America in the 80s and 90s. So almost as if um, following other political systems uh, and, and then those political systems failing indirectly just fostered the growth of democracy. Another factor in the growth of democracy, especially in the 20th century, was the uh, appearance of market economies. So if you can remember from the socialism episode highly centralized uh, where socialists propose a more highly centralized economy where a governing body actually exerts more control or exhibits full control over the economy whereas a market economy the control is just scattered among the people and does this not remind you of the way a democracy works where the control is scattered among the people so this is is kind of what happened when when these more centralized economies started to fail, um, it left room for uh, almost the power to go back into the hands of a people in a sense, not only economically, but also uh, politically and, and to make decisions 
for the world uh, or not for the world, but for their nation or for their country uh, individually. Other aspects of a market economy that contributed to the development of democracy was ready access to reliable information and relatively high levels of education. So we're going to talk about a, a little later and actually in the next section, but just about how when you're more educated, you are more um, defended and safeguarded against um, anti-democratic sentiments and, and blindly following a leader. And when you get more educated, you have more of your own say and you have your own political opinion. You want to share your own ideas and that fosters a democratic sentiment. As market economies expanded and as middle classes grew larger and more influential, popular support for conditions increased, often accompanied by demands for further dem democratization. So this is the way that these market economies stimulated the growth of democracies around the world. Um, the middle class grew and, and it just allowed for almost further demands of democratization because conditions got better. And then if conditions are getting better in a democracy and you're going to continue following those principles and relatedly, this increased economic well-being that started to roll around has fostered the democratic sentiment. So in general, citizens in democratic countries with persistent poverty are more susceptible to the appeals of anti-democratic demagogues who promise simple and immediate solutions to their country's economic problems. The more educated you gain, you get, excuse me, the more safeguarded you are against anti-democratic principles or, or tricksters or manipulators or, or theoretically you should be the more the more you know right but uh, so these demagogues often you look at trump he's been called a demagogue a lot and this is because he preys on the prejudices a demagogue is a leader who preys on the prejudices of ordinary people rather than using rational arguments so he preys upon the prejudices uh, of, I guess you could say ordinary people based on the definition, rather than making actual rational arguments. And if you notice, more educated people tend not to support Trump because they can almost see through this. So it's almost as if the more education a society gets and each individual in a society gets, the more they are safeguarded against these demagogues who may be spewing anti-democratic principles like Trump has spewed when he says it was the election was rigged or, or counted again or things like this with more education you can kind of see through what he's saying and you can see how he's just trying to um, use peripheral routes to manipulate people rather than actually giving some facts the more educated you get the more you start to start to value facts and the more you start to uh, if you see something that's not factual you're going to decline it and and this tends to grow democratic sentiment because everyone starts to develop their own ideas and they all want to have a say and, and play a role in democracy. And kind of in the way that economic and educational advances help foster democracy, it also fosters a culture with a democratic political culture in each person. And this helps to foster democracy, especially in the 20th century this was happening. During the 20th century, democracy still existed in countries even though there were periods of acute diplomatic, military, economic, and political crises. Take the Great Depression, for example. That, that happened in a democratic society. But why is it that they didn't turn their back on democracy all of a sudden 
when things started to go downhill. And downhill is an understatement, but why did they stick with democracy? How is this possible? Well, the survival of democratic institutions in these countries is attributable in part to the existence in their societies of a culture widely shared um, of, of democratic beliefs and values. Such attitudes are acquired early in life from older generations, thus becoming embedded in people's views of themselves, their country, and the world. So democratic sentiment among these people uh, who have lived in a democratic institution for their whole lives gets almost passed down in a way. Their beliefs and their values about a culture of democracy get passed down to the younger generations, and they just accept democracy for what it is. So the teenagers, perhaps in the Great Depression, they didn't totally turn their backs on democracy. Maybe some did. Maybe some had anti-democratic sentiments. But the more the culture of democracy gets established, it get, the more it gets passed down. And then even if you go through tough, time, tough times, you can resist that because you've built up this culture of democracy. And this is kind of proven based on when you see other countries where democratic culture is weak or absent. And this was the case in the Weimar Republic of Germany in the years following World War I. Their democracy was much more vulnerable, and periods of crisis were more likely to lead to reversion to a non-democratic regi regime, which, which is what happened. I mean, look at the fascist regime in, regime in Germany. So when there's not this culture to um, inoculate you from changing your ways uh, against a democracy when, or, or to inoculate you against hard times, um, if this culture do, it doesn't exist, then democracy is more fragile. But if this culture does exist, democracy can persist. So this is almost just like a happenstance of uh, when democracy was, um, was growing throughout the world, then a culture started to get created and then it just made democracy stronger indirectly. Um, but even though the democracy is strong, the, dem the democratic sentiment is quite strong among so many people here in North America, it doesn't mean there aren't any problems and challenges with democracy. And one of the main problems that we see quite clearly today is the problem of an inequality of resources. And I should say that the problem of inequality of resources, it actually causes a problem. So what is the problem that it causes? So because those with greater resources naturally tend to use them to influence the political system to their advantage, the existence of such inequalities creates a persistent obstacle to the achievement of a satisfactory level of political equality. So all of this to say that perhaps you may not truly be living in a democracy as soon as money starts to get involved because the richer people have more of an influence. And even though the rich person votes once and the poor person votes once, the rich person can fund um, political parties or, or um, political campaigns. And then the word for that political party gets more out to, to people and that influences more and more people to vote for them and their side. So yes, they only vote once, but what about when you get money involved here? Is Does that really create equal say among everybody? Is that truly democratic? Perhaps not. And that's a great challenge of democracy that we see so much today. We're funding by these donors, these millions and millions of dollars, that influence 
influences so many people that are voting in the election. There's also the issue of the international system factor. So if you can remember just earlier in the episode, which is only like 10 minutes ago, um, when we talked about when hunter and gatherers became uh, more uh, intertwined in societies with more trade and, and in larger societies during the agricultural revolution, it became more difficult to continue democracy and to establish democratic principles. Well, that problem still exists today. Democratic nations formed several international organizations after World War II, most notably the United Nations in 1945, and their numbers and responsibilities grew rapidly through the rest of the 20th century. By shifting ultimate control of a country's policies in a certain area to the international level, it inherently reduces the influence that citizens can exert on these policies through democratic means. When the scale grows and grows more and more, out of control and, and more widespread, it's almost as if the each citizen gets less and less of a say of what's happening because you've now you've you're applying your principles on a global scale. So it's kind of like when we went from hunters and gatherers to the people living in uh, on farms and in agricultural lands and in bigger uh, communities, the bigger things get and the bigger the scale, the harder it is to maintain democratic principles. And that's still happening today. Um, we're going to close off talking about philosophical arguments in favor and against democracy. And you can't find too many arguments against democracy these days. But early on it, with those early philosophers, including Plato in Greece, and then later with Thomas Hobbes, there were ideas that perhaps democracy may not be so good. And, and perhaps looking at some of these challenges or foreseeing some of these challenges, these proponents um, for systems other than democracy uh, saw that democracy may not be the best option. But first, let's talk about ph philosophical arguments in favor of democracy. So J.S. Mill, he, he really is one of, the, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the 19th century, perhaps the greatest and most influential. And he discusses that democracies create good laws and policies. He argued that a democratic method of making legislation is better than non-democratic methods in three ways, strategically, epistemically, and via the improvement of the characters of democratic citizens. So we're going to talk about these three philosophical arguments in favor of democracy. First of all, the strategic element that makes democracy good, according to John Stuart Mill. So strategically, democracy has an advantage because it forces decision makers to consider the interests, rights, and opinions of most people in society. Since democracy gives political power to each person, more people are considered than under an aristocracy or a monarchy. So that's great. More people get a say. Um, the most forceful statement backing up this argument is provided by Amartya Sen, who argues that no substantial famine has ever occurred in any independent country with a democratic form of government and a relatively free press. So you can see how perhaps the democratic strategy uh, or the democratic institutions creates a strategic advantage and and it allows the reasoning for the this lack of these famines that you see in communist regimes. Why is this? Well, um, 
The reasoning for this may be that politicians in a multi-party democracy with free elections and a free press have incentives to respond to the needs of the poor. So because even if you look at a Trump who is um, trying to appease, uh, he's trying to appease so many people, but hey, look, he still has to do things that are going to be good for the poor people too, because that could be a lot of his base and the uneducated people might be a lot of his base as well. So he does, might have incentives to help them out. So it's a strategic advantage for a society that is in a democracy. There's also the epistemic benefits. So epistemic is as it relates to knowledge. So there's a benefit of democracy, according to John Stuart Mill, as it relates to the knowledge that democracy engenders. Democracy is thought to be the best decision-making method on the grounds that it is generally more reliable in helping participants to discover the right decisions, according to John Stuart Mill. And this it's because of this. Since democracy brings a lot of people into the process of decision-making, it can take advantage of many sources of information and critical assessment of laws and policies. So it has this epistemic benefit of, okay, now the vote is kind of on you. So now it forces, it's on each individual. So it forces everybody, or at least a lot more people, to go do some research and figure out who they're going to vote for and what's going to be best for the country. It could engender, engender a sense of patriotism. And when you go and vote and you feel good about your country and the policies that you're supporting. And so it creates more knowledge about what's actually happening in society, according to Mill. Finally, he says that it actually improves the character of each and every participant within the democracy. Many have noted, adding on to Mill's ideas, that democracy tends to make people stand up for themselves more than other forms of rule do, because it makes collective decisions depend on them more than a monarchy or aristocracy do. It makes people speak out because they, they do have a say now, rather than just being um, completely led by, by a domineering leader. So in democratic societies, individuals, according to Mill and others, are encouraged to be more autonomous. In addition, democracy tends to get people to think carefully and rationally more than other forms of rule because it makes a difference whether they do or not. So the very fact that it makes a difference if you care makes, makes people care. It makes people care about what's going to happen because you do have a say. When people participate in making decisions, they also must listen to others. They are called upon to justify themselves to others, and they are forced to think in terms of the interests of others. So, some have claimed that when people find themselves in this kind of circumstance, they come genuinely to think in terms of the common good and justice. And this sounds like a, a quite the idealization, and I know many probably don't feel quite that way, that it, it makes you think of the common good all the time and justice because there are a lot of other factors influencing your behavior, even though you do live within a democracy. How often do you really get to exercise um, your participation in a democracy? And how often do you really feel like, is it only while you're voting? Is it What are the actual factors that influence you, your behavior so markedly that just being in a democracy all of a sudden makes everyone think of the common good? Um it, it, it might be an idealization, but these are these are some philosophical kind of ideas about how um, 
they think it improves the character of people in democracy. Overall, they just argue that a society of decision makers is more likely to produce good legislation than a society ruled by one person or a small group of people who rule over slavish and unreflective subjects. Um, but we're going to close with arguments against democracy. Um, starting with Plato, Plato himself argued that in democracy, those who are expert at winning elections and nothing else will eventually dominate democratic policies. So maybe it actually doesn't have anything to do with this greater good and, oh yeah, they, they care so much for the greater good in a democracy. It, it's just whoever's best at manipulating is going to win the election. Look at the United States. As I mentioned, how often the winner just comes from whoever has more of a financial backing or more political connections and, and things that are counter to true democracy, perhaps. And Plato has kind of foresaw this. So thus, uh, Plato argues that uh, this could cause the state to be guided by very poorly worked out ideas that experts in manipulation and mass appeal use to help themselves win office. And it has nothing to do with this greater good sentiment and these things that are idealized by Mill and others. The master manipulator is going to be the one who wins in a democracy. So this is why democracy could be challenging. Hobbes, let's close off with Hobbes and what he has said against democracy. So he argues that democracy is inferior to monarchy because democracy fosters dissension among subjects. On his view, individual citizens and even politicians are apt to not have a sense of responsibility for the quality of legislation because no one makes a significant enough difference to the outcomes of decision-making. So look at, I mean, look at the lack of voters in so many democratic elections. If you feel like you don't really have that much of a say, are you really going to be um, having this great sentiment that you, like Mill says, where, oh yeah, I'm doing something for the common good and it's making me a just person. That's going to make me do my research and consider my role. But Hobbes says, your role isn't big enough to really feel enough enthusiasm for those things to happen. So as a consequence, citizens' concerns are not focused on politics, really, is what Hobbes says. And politicians succeed just by making loud and manipulative appeals to citizens in order to gain more and more power. But they lack incentives to consider views that are genuinely for the common good. With no enthusiasm here, Hobbes believes that People will be persuaded not by a politician's logical argument that Mill assumes they would be, but just by manipulative secondary roads to persuasion that have nothing to do with the legitimacy of the claims. So this is kind of like what Plato is saying. It's just because there's not enough enthusiasm among each person, because they don't really care, because uh, they don't have enough of a say. And look how many people, for instance, in the United States don't vote because they don't feel like they have enough of a say anyway. Because of this lack of enthusiasm, if they do vote, they're just going to vote for whoever is the most manipulative and talks with the most bluster and, and says things like, we're going to build a wall, but offers no kind of uh, telling when or how or all the policies that are happening. And so Hobbes kind of predicted this and he says, there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to vote for these foolish policies because there's not enough enthusiasm because they don't feel like they have enough of a say anyway. So might as well just go for whoever hypes me up more and look what happened in 2016. Hobbes says, this is what happens in a democracy. Feel People feel as if they have such little power that they just go by whatever sounds best rather than taking the time to make a sound decision. 
and arguments building upon Hobbes's arguments claim that citizens are not informed about politics and they are often apathetic, which makes room for special interests to control the behavior of politicians and to use the state for their own purposes rather than for the benefit of society. And the question is valid. Even today, um, are, are, are politicians trying to win the election for the benefit of society or are they doing it for themselves? Is it a bit of both? Is it 90-10? Is it 50-50? Who knows? I'm of the view, I'm of a more cynical view that it's more for personal gain. Um, but either way, I am still glad and I am um, blessed and grateful to be in a democratic society, I believe, where I do have a say, although it is small, as Plato and Hobbes point out. But I do see what Mill is saying, where it does engender some of a sense of uh, feeling like I have a say and feeling um, as if I'm doing something for the greater good when I do vote. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. We're growing our community through word of mouth. So if you like this episode, please share it with one or two people who are also interested in politics, interested in political philosophy, perhaps. Maybe people who also you might have shared the uh, socialism episode with. Share this one as well. Subscribe or follow as well and leave a star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or a like on YouTube. Share your ideas through the YouTube comment section, the Connect page on the website, or through social media. Check out the blog posts as well on the website. And if you want to join our monthly ITP video conference call, where we analyze topics together every month, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Whatever you guys do to support, listening and watching is always plenty, as I say all the time. I can't thank you guys enough for listening into the Insightful Thinkers podcast, even days when... um, I may not be on my game, maybe on my game and it be as focused, maybe tired, whatever. Um, we have consistent listeners who listen in and uh, uh, they fight through uh, <laughs> any mistakes and then they listen in. And thank you guys for that, the consistent listeners that we have. And uh, I, I really appreciate you guys listening, as I say every time. Um, and we're going to be back for more every Monday, as I've been saying, for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.